great to be able to just gather like this. This morning I was just praying and thanking the Lord for this, the great privilege that we have of being able to do this. And just thanking the Lord for each and every one of you, uh, because you're such a blessing. And every week when I come here, I always have a sense of excitement, anticipation, uh, just to be able to meet up with you again and chat with you and catch up with you. So it's, it's wonderful to be a part of a family, isn't it? A family of believers, a family of faith, a family that is on the same journey together. And, and that's what we are. We're all in this together, serving one Lord and uh, with one great hope in our hearts. And that's how we gather today. So are you ready for God's Word? Well, let's, let's turn to, to Peter, if you have your Bibles, that is. Otherwise, it will be on the screen. Uh, 2 Peter, we're in chapter 2. And as we've said, this is Peter's farewell message, uh, his last words that we know of, that were given to the church by the Holy Spirit so that we could be equipped and we could be educated and that we would be able to stand the test of our walk with God, the tests that we go through and all that Satan would throw at us. So we're in chapter 2, and let's just read today. I know Ian started this in the last, um, last week's sermon. So I want to start, I want to read three verses that he did read last week, and then I want to drop down to verse 10 and pick up from where he left off. So let's have a look at this. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and then from verse 10 to 22, the end of the chapter. Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Down to verse 10. They indulge in the lust of de defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm, 
For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. As we look at this passage that we've read today, just about the whole chapter, uh, we need to understand that this chapter is actually the key to us understanding the purpose for which Peter wrote this letter. And if you notice, he has devoted one-third of this letter to describing to us false teachers. And I believe that that's very significant because Peter obviously believed that this would be the greatest danger, or at least one of the greatest dangers, that we would face as God's people as we travel through life. Note how condemning he is towards these false teachers. I mean, just you think of his language and the tone that he puts across as he writes here. There's absolutely no love, no grace, and no respect whatsoever for them. Um, he doesn't cut them any slack. He pronounces judgment on them. He pronounces their condemnation in very serious and almost harsh language. I think you could pick that up as, he, as, as, as we read. And so that brings us to the question, why would he talk this way? Why would he view people that are what he calls false teachers in this kind of attitude? And I think there's four things that we could say. Number one is he understood the reality of Satan and Satan's war against God's people. Peter understood that. He understood the nature of this war, that it revolves around deception, leading God's people away from the truth. And when we think about it, that has always been Satan's strategy, hasn't it? From the very beginning, from the garden, what was the weapon that he used? It was deception. And what was his aim? To lead people away from the word of God into doing things that displease God and bring destruction on them. So that has always been Satan's uh, scheme, his, his uh, mode of, of operandi. That's the way he's always operated. That has always been what he's done. He is the great deceiver. Revelation 12.11 says that he is the one who has led the world astray. He has deceived the entire world. And so Peter, in the understanding of that, and understanding the nature of the war that Satan wages against humanity, that it revolves around deception, recognized that false teachers are Satan's undercover agents. 
When he looked at a false teacher, he saw someone serving Satan. And when he looked at it and he, by the Spirit of God, looked ahead in time, he foresaw how intense this war would become after his death. How the, the, the church would be assailed by Satan, by deception, by false teachers, and he saw the danger that it would pose to those who believe. And so that's why his language is so strong. There is absolutely no room, no wiggle room given for these people that are false teachers. So he writes this letter primarily to warn us about false teachers and to give us the keys so that we can be equipped to escape Satan's schemes against our lives. So this is very serious stuff. And this is absolutely relevant to us. As we read this chapter, you know, we might be tempted to say, you know, well, what, what bearing does this have on my life? This has absolutely everything to do with our lives, our daily lives. We are right in the midst of this battle. Whether we recognize it or whether we don't, this is the reality of the situation. We are in the midst of this battle. And Satan is after our souls. Peter says this, he says, be sober and be alert for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And then he says, resist him, standing steadfast in the faith. That means standing steadfast in the truth, in the beliefs that we have as Christians that have been passed down to us through the apostles from the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's just analyze quickly what Peter tells us about false teachers. And just remember that the reason he's telling us these things is so we can identify them. Because they're slippery. They're cunning. And many, many people are being deceived and led astray by them. Remember what the Lord said. He said, many false prophets will arise and they will deceive many he said, watch out that no one deceives you. And in that particular discourse, as he was pointing towards the end of the age, three times he warned about deception. He warned about false teachers, false preachers that would lead people away from the truth. And that's so significant because when you look at that passage at the Lord, this is Matthew 24, that he, he was speaking those words in, you will see that he spoke about deception more than anything else. It's not a small matter. This is something that is very relevant to us. So let's have a look at this. I've, what I've done just to make it a little bit easier for us is I've arranged what Peter said in this chapter, what we read, into th under three headings. The first one is their, their characteristics. The second one is their methodology. And the third one, the results that their work will produce. So let's have a look firstly at the characteristics of false teachers. And I'm going to give you a number of them here that come up in this passage. The first one is, they are sensual, worldly, and slaves to corruption. And if you look at this passage, this is one of the preeminent characteristics that you will find in false teachers. Verse 10 says they indulge their fleshly desires. Verse 13 says they counted pleasure to revel in the daytime. 
Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Verse 19, they are slaves of corruption. The problem is, is that this is not readily apparent when someone stands in the pulpit. You know, people can be something, one thing in the pulpit, another thing when they're living their lives, their daily lives behind the scenes. And so, particularly in this day and age where there are preachers on television, there are preachers on YouTube, we don't really have a point of reference necessarily to the way they live their lives. And so this can be a bit difficult for us to be able to assess whether a person fits into this category. But let me just say this, because I think it'll help us to be able to just find out what is really behind the person that is speaking. And I think it manifests in the pulpit in two ways. So this manifests in the pulpit in two ways. Number one, a preoccupation in the pulpit with the pleasures of this life. So in other words, somebody who's constantly talking about having a better life now, your best life now, those kind of things where it's all to do with this life. Secondly, making light of sin. Someone who stands in the pulpit but never speaks out against sin, doesn't want to condone it, doesn't want to teach people that there is a specific way that God has laid down in, in the Word of God that He's given us to follow as we, we, we walk with Christ. And so there's no focus in the pulpit on what Scripture says about godly conduct. That part of Scripture is basically ignored. So if you find that, I believe that that's a very good indicator that the person that is preaching actually doesn't put any value on righteous and godly conduct. Doesn't, it's not high on his priority list. What he's really concerned with is, is helping people to feel good about themselves, helping people to enjoy their life, be maybe more successful and more happy. When you see that, when that's the emphasis, I believe that's a pretty good sign that that person fits into the category that I've just been sharing with you. The second one is they love money. And this is another primary trait that comes out in this passage, comes out very clearly in this passage. Verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Verse 14, they have hearts trained in greed. Verse 15, they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain, loved gain from wrongdoing. We, I think we know the story of Balaam, how he was prepared to go against God's command in order to get treasure, to get a reward, an earthly reward. So I would say this, any teacher who is prosperity focused and driven, driven by prosperity, is not a teacher that any of us want to follow. Okay? Thirdly, it says they will, he, Peter says they will exploit people. Verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. So they're going to take advantage of people. And it goes hand in hand with their love of money. They will do it with false words. And we'll talk a little bit later about what that phrase, false words, points to. And so the red flag here is this. Any preacher promising prosperity, healing, power, God's blessing, if you give them money, flee. 
run in the other direction. Okay? And I think we see a lot of that, don't we? The fourth thing is they despise authority. We see this in verse 10. They despise authority. So what, how does this manifest? Well, they don't want anyone to tell them what to do. So in other words, they want to be the number one. It must be their ministry. They want to have complete control over it. They don't want to be accountable to anyone because they have a hotline to God. And only God can tell them what to do. If you hear that coming forth from a pulpit, leave. Don't listen to what that person's saying. Number five, they are bold and willful. We could say this, they are brazen and insolent, proud and arrogant. Or we could say they brash. They come across, they brash in the way that they preach, the way that they treat people. They're not timid. They're not afraid of anything. Verse 10 says, they do not even tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. They will speak out against beings that they don't even really understand. Like, for example, in Jude, this t it tells us that it refer it's referring here to actually to Satan. I've heard preachers standing in the pulpit and they will say things like, you know, they'll call Satan a lizard. What are they doing? They're actually blaspheming. A being that the Bible tells us even Michael the archangel wouldn't talk to him like that. So they, are, they, they, they talk about Satan, you know, and I've been, in, I've been in church services where I've heard preachers say that. You know, let's get that lizard and, you know, trample his foot, scrunch his foot into the dust. They don't even know what they're talking about. They don't even realize that we have to walk very carefully in the eyes of God to escape Satan. I've been in services where, you know, and particularly in this country where there's a chant, you know, down, down Satan. And then they'll say the snake. And I've walked up into the pulpit in those churches and I've said to them, you're saying that about Satan, but how many of you are living in sexual immorality right now? How many of you are actually following Satan in the way that you're living? So, this bold, willful, brazen, insolent, proud, arrogant, brash attitude. I remember I was in a place called Gerera, which is down in the Lofalt. If you're traveling through to Cherezi, you'll pass by Gerera. I was doing a series of meetings there, and during the time, it was like a conference. During the lunch break, one of the pastors took me into his home. And he put on a video, and he said, listen to this guy. It was... The guy that was on that documentary, his name's Hubert Angel. Now, I'd never heard of him before. This is many years ago. This is probably about 10 years ago. Never heard of him. And he said, what do you think of this guy? I watched him for three minutes, literally for three minutes. And I said, this guy's not of God. This man's not of God. What was it that told me he was not of God? It was his arrogant, brash attitude. It was just so noticeable. So... Let's carry on and look at the next one. They are loud and boastful. We see this in verse 18. That means they speak high-sounding words, but they're empty. When you really think about them, they amount to nothing. They brag about themselves, about their anointing, their special relationship with God, their God encounters, and they talk more about what God has said to them than what the Bible says. 
So when they stand in the pulpit, it'll be, the Lord said this to me, and the Lord said that to me, and it's like the Lord's talking to them every five seconds. But it's not coming out of the Bible. It's coming out of their own hearts and their own minds and their own thinking. This is how God speaks to us. This is, the, this is what preachers are meant to do. Preachers are meant to lift up the Word of God. That's our job. That's our only job, is to lift up the Word of God and, and put it before those that we are talking to. It's not to come with our own experiences and tell people about all the stories that we've had and puff ourselves up in the eyes of people. The seventh one, they are unashamed of it all. It says they revel in their deceptions in verse 13. They revel in their deceptions. They're actually proud of it. They enjoy it. They like it. So let's move on now and let's have a look at their methodology. Firstly, they operate clandestinely. Ian talked a bit about this last week. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 13 to 15, he says they disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. Let me just read that to you quickly. It's not on the overhead, but let me just read it to you. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, Paul writes this, For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. He's saying the same thing as what Peter said. So, they put themselves across as servants of Christ, servants of God. They're, they're deceptive. This whole thing is so deceptive. And that's why Peter had to go to such great lengths to give us these traits so that we would be wise enough to be able to spot where there is someone who is just masquerading as a minister of righteousness. And they bring in their heresies secretly, it says here, undercover. They secretly bring in destructive heresies. What's a heresy? Well, a heresy is any teaching that does not agree with what the apostles teach in the Scriptures, what we've received from here, this, what, what is written here. Anything that does not agree with that is a heresy. But notice it says they will bring in destructive heresies that will lead people to destruction. So these things that Peter's talking about here are Things that do not agree with Scripture, that will actually lead people to destruction. It will stop them being saved. And he says they're going to bring it in secretly, so subtly. So how do they do this? They cloak the heresy with truth. If you look at the language, the Greek language here, it actually speaks of them slipping the heresy in unnoticed. It's like they hide it in something. If I want to pass someone something that I don't want anyone else to see, I might wrap it in a cloak. And I give them the cloak. People think I'm just giving somebody the cloak, but inside there's something there. And this is what they do. They take that heresy and they cloak it with truth. So you're not going to hear heresy coming forward from the pulpit necessarily with, with it, where there's no truth. They mix it with truth. There's a, there's a mixing that takes place. It's very subtle. They make it sound right. So they give it an air of orthodoxy. They use biblical terms 
But when you listen to what they're saying, they subtly begin to redefine what those terms are. So they might use the word righteousness, but they just begin to redefine what righteousness is. They might use the word grace, but then they begin to put their own spin on what grace is. They may even mention the name Jesus and talk freely about Jesus. But when you really listen to what they're saying, they're actually recharacterizing Jesus. They're making him into a different Jesus. And think about this. The Jehovah's Witnesses, do you know that they have a different Jesus to us? They talk about Jesus. They'll say they believe in Jesus. But their Jesus is a very different to the Jesus of the Bible. Their Jesus, when you really get down to it, is Michael the Archangel. But they will use the term Jesus. Okay? Mormons have a different Jesus to the Jesus of the Bible. What is their Jesus? Their Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Okay? But all talk about Jesus. So it can be very, very subtle the way that it's brought in. It's not just, you know, false teachers don't stand in the pulpit and just wave a flag and say, I'm a false teacher. They do it very subtly. And they will introduce their heresies slowly over time. Bit by bit. They just move you from one place to the next place to the next place. They will emphasize what the Bible doesn't emphasize. And they will ignore what the Bible does emphasize. So in other words, they major on the minors. They minor on the majors. And they slowly build this false picture, this false narrative about the gospel, about Jesus, our Lord, about the Holy Spirit, about salvation. Slowly but surely, they move people away from the truth. Okay? So it's important that we see and understand this. This has great bearing on our lives. Number two, they use carefully crafted teachings. Verse 3 says, they will exploit you with false words. Now that, that phrase, false words there, literally refers to messages or teachings that have been carefully crafted and molded to achieve the aim of getting people to believe what they are saying. They give great thought to this. They're masters at this. They have a great ability to build a narrative. They're masters of knowing what will strike a chord in people's hearts. And they're great storytellers, articulate entertaining, love to use personal experiences rather than the Word of God in their teaching and move people to do things for them that they wouldn't otherwise do. How many of us have seen this? I certainly have. The third thing, they appeal to the sinful desires of the flesh. Verse 14, they entice unsteady souls. Verse 18, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So they're going after people who don't really know the Bible. People that just have a limited knowledge of the Scriptures. That's who they're really going after. It says here, people who have barely escaped living in error. They're just coming out of it. People that are coming to church just considering what the Christian faith is, considering God, 
This is who they're after. They know they can't get people that are firmly grounded in this, firmly committed to this. They appeal to people through what we naturally love and seek, through our natural desires. So they appeal. They, as it says, they will entice by sensual passions of the flesh. They will offer things like prosperity, health, power, happiness, significance, freedom. Freedom from God's law. Freedom from the need for holiness. Freedom from biblical standards of conduct, godliness. They'll offer this sense of freedom to people. And it's very appealing to people. It entices people. They'll deny, it says in verse 2, the sovereign Lord who bought them. So what does that mean? They don't deny Him in the sense that they stand up and say, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe that Jesus is Lord. Because we wouldn't believe that. There would be no danger to us. But it's in the way that they make light of His commandments. His moral laws. It's in the way that they portray Him as existing purely to serve our will and desires and give us our best life now. So rather than Him being the sovereign Lord who paid that incredible price to redeem us, suffered and gave His life as He did to redeem us, and focusing on that, they will actually twist it and turn Him into the one who is there as a genie in the bottle. If you stroke him the right way, you know, you know that thing? If you rub it the right way, he'll give you whatever you wish. If you can follow this correct formula, you'll have everything you want in life. God will give everything you want in life. That's what Peter's talking about here. Verse 4, they make great, sorry, number 4, they make great promises. That's in verse 19. They promise freedom, all kinds of freedom. And they will assess what a group of people wants, and they will promise that to people. I see it in this nation. I see evangelists all around this nation, so-called evangelists, false evangelists, preaching. And when they stand up and preach, what do they preach? The very thing the people are looking for. The very thing the people want, naturally speaking. Prosperity, health, deliverance from every curse, freedom from witchcraft that's what they come in promising and they make great promises and it's all to do with them and their anointing that God has given them and if you want that anointing to bless you to set you free you need to give money to that preacher because the money will become the bridge which his anointing will flow to you and give you what has been promised it's great empty promises and I see people flocking to these meetings and listening to this kind of hogwash. Believing it. Taking their money, selling their cars, selling their businesses, putting it in the hands of these preachers. These preachers are building big houses out on the Enterprise Road, while the people that have given them the money are in exactly the same state, even worse than they ever were before. And I remember talking to someone in Hatcliffe, and this lady said to me, you know, when I go to the meeting, she was, she was attending the meeting of one of these false prophets. She said, when I go to these meetings, I do not take a single dollar in my bag because whatever I take, I'll end up putting it in the offering. She had no control to even hold that money because she was under, literally under a spell. 
So do you see what's taking place? This is, this is real life stuff that Peter is sharing here. And this is affecting not just people in this country, it's affecting people, believers all over the world. Their promises are empty, and that's why Peter says they are like springs without water. People go to them expecting to get water, but at the end of it, there's no water. There's nothing of benefit that comes to them at all. And you know what it ends up happening? These people fall away from God. They turn their backs on Jesus. They say, that preacher promised me that Jesus was going to heal me. He promised me that Jesus was going to give me prosperity. I have done everything that he said to the place where I'm now weary of trying to follow all his rules, all his formulas. Nothing has changed in my life. I do not believe in this Jesus anymore. And they go back to their traditional religion. That's what's happening in this nation right now. Let's have a look at this brings us to the results of their wicked work. They will be very successful and popular. Verse 2, many will follow them in their sensuality. Not few, many. And secondly, they will bring the way of truth into disrepute. This has happened. This is already taking place. I remember... Things that took place in the, in the United States during the time of COVID have, have the world laughing at the church. High-profile so-called prophets standing on television, standing, being aired on television. Back when the pandemic was just starting, decreeing and declaring that the pandemic was over, as so-called prophets of God, only to find out that the pandemic continued raging. And the world looks at this and says, these guys are nuts. They're crazy. The greed, the prosperity gospel, the exploitation that has been taking place has brought such disrepute on the church and on the truth and on the way of the truth. I've had people say to me, the church is just a business. It's all it is. And pastors and preachers are just in there as businessmen. It's their way. They exploit people. And it's tarnished everyone. There are people that look upon any church this way. They don't differentiate. So what Peter said all those years ago, we can see it happening today. Thirdly, they will lead people who are just escaping from their sins back into their sins and ultimately to their destruction. And this is the worst thing. Verse 18 talks about this and through to the end of the chapter. People are going to perish eternally because of their wicked work. And that's what Satan's after. And that's why Peter is so ruthless in his condemnation of these false teachers. Let me just leave a couple of final words with you. We are living, we are living in treacherous times, spiritually speaking. It's not just in the natural. I mean, there are treacherous times in the world, naturally speaking. But what we're seeing in the natural is far worse, spiritually speaking. Let's not forget that we do have an adversary. 
And I remember when I was back in Form 3, I was a boarder at Plumtree for my sins. And um, I remember a man came there to do an expose on rock music. So this was back in the 80s, early 80s. And he was doing this expose on rock music, and I was Form 3, and we had a balcony at the back of the hall. I was seated up there with, with everyone. The whole school was there at this presentation. I'd been raised in a Christian home. I knew what the Bible said. But something happened that night. As he was sharing and doing this expose on rock music and just showing how Satan was behind it and how he was using it. It was like the Holy Spirit took the blinders off my eyes. And for the first time in my life, I realized the reality of Satan. And I realized the reality of the war that we are all in, whether we want to be in it or not. This war that is waging over the souls of people, the souls of humanity, our souls. And I was so convicted at the end of the presentation, the, the speaker, the presenter, he gave an altar call. And everybody on that balcony, Form 3s, was down at the front at that altar call, except for me. I was the only one left seated there. And the reason I didn't move is because I, I was under such conviction, I didn't even want to move. I'm sure he looked up at that balcony and he saw me, that one person seated up there, and he thought, that, that boy, he can't even be moved by peer pressure. <laughs> but it wasn't that. And the interesting thing is that all the people that went down to the front, as we were walking back to our hostel, they were saying, oh, I just went there for fun, you know, I just did it. They were all trying to get out of it now. And I was just walking along silently with this deep conviction in my heart. It changed my life. It changed my life. And my prayer today is that every single one of us will realize the reality of Satan, the reality of what's taking place in the world today, that we would not be blinded to it and naive to it. We have an adversary. What must we do? All we need to do is take to heart what Peter is teaching us in this letter. What he's sharing in this letter are the keys that we need to be able to escape false teachers and walk in the truth right through into the eternal kingdom of God. That's what this whole letter is about. And really we could sum it up in two things and, and you'll see this as we continue on in this letter. It's summed up in two things. Being conscientious about the kind of people we are and the way we conduct ourselves in life. Being conscientious about that. And secondly, being devoted to knowing and what is understanding. To knowing and understanding what is written in this book. Those two things. And if we will do that, we will walk securely. And we will, we will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our God and Father. That's what we want, isn't it? That's what God wants for every single one of us here in this place today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today 
that even though these are very sobering words, we thank you, Father, that they are given to us for our salvation, for our eternal benefit. And so I pray today, Father, that every one of us will be able to hear them that way. And that, Lord, what we've read today in this chapter will never be forgotten by us. That we will hold it close to our hearts. That they will be words that you constantly remind us of as is needed. And that they would be salvation to us. Father, I commit every single one of us that's gathered here today into your hands. And I pray for every person, Lord, that maybe it's just seeking and inquiring to know a little bit more about the Christian faith. I pray for them today that they would come to know you, to know the reality of the Bible, the reality of the truth. And I pray for every one of us, Father, who already knows that, that, Lord, we would never be led astray, we would never depart from the faith that we have received from you through the Holy Scriptures. May our hearts always be humble. May our hearts always be open. May we always be teachable when we come to your Scriptures. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.